0: Welcome to PNC Speak, the language of executives. I'm John Bernstein, Regional President of PNC Bank in New England, alongside my co-host, Carolyn Jones, Market President and Publisher of the Boston Business
1: Journal. Thanks, John. It's great to be with you on PNC Speak. Each podcast features local executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge-sharing platform showcases leaders with forward-thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently.
0: Our guest today is Rob Hale, President and CEO of Granite Telecommunications. Rob, welcome to PNCC Speak. It's great to have you join us today.
2: I'm happy to be here. Caroline, thank you for making the time for me.
0: Thank you. Rob, there are so many things to talk about and cover, but can we start with an overview of Granite Telecommunications and its mission?
2: Sure. Just a couple of facts. We're about a $1.8 billion business. There are about 2,500 teammates at Granite. We support about 17,000 commercial customers. Our niche is multi-location big business. So PNC is a customer of ours, as are the three or four other banks that are of your approximate size. And pull all the services together in a single support network. A nice way to say it might not be one throat to choke, but that's probably the way many folks look at it, for managed voice and data services.
1: That's great. Well, thank you for that uh, overview. Rob, maybe a little bit more about Granite. So you started Granite with your Mm -hmm. father. So tell us a little bit about that.
2: I'd probably have to back up 10 years to give you Good. Okay, that's good. (laughs) So I graduated from Connecticut College, whose mascot, by the way, is the camels. That's a proud mascot, uh, Connecticut College camel. I went to work for MCI in sales in the Prudential Center. Loved every minute of it. There was this thing called aggregation, which was bulk buying of AT&T services, and a couple of my customers asked me what it was, and I said, I don't know, but I'll look into it. And as I looked into it, I said to my dad, my mom, my father was the original importer of Laura Ashley. I suspect, Carolyn, you've worn Laura Ashley at one juncture or another. A couple of festive occasions, I'm sure. (laughs) And so I was raised in an entrepreneurial environment. And so I said to my folks, we can do this, this aggregation, this bulk buying of AT&T services. And so today people see a lot of zeros around granted or around some of the philanthropic efforts for the Hales. And the numbers can get a bit misleading. My parents put up 400,000 bucks in 1990, which was their nest egg. So my parents bet the farm on me. And so that's never to be forgotten. So in 1990, my father and my mother were the funders of Network Plus in Quincy, and I was the founder. In 1990, we lost money from 91 to 98, we grew profitably. Goldman Sachs cold called me in 98 and said, hey, do you want to do a bond offering? And I said, listen, I'm a phone guy. I'm not a finance guy. I don't, I don't know what a bond offering is. They said, if you do a bond offering, you could do an IPO and, and you will be a billionaire. And I said, I love bond offerings. I love, <laughs> but, but, but of course, I want to do that bond offering. And what they said was going to happen, happened. In June of 99, we went public. And these are the halcyon times of, of CELEX. That's the competitive local exchange carrier. That's kind of the acronym that defined what we were. So we went public in June of 99. Stock both to open trading at 16. It didn't open till 26 because there was so much demand for it. Over the next eight or nine months, it drifted up to about $63 a share. I own 27 million shares, so I had a billion four next to my name. According to Forbes, I was the seventh wealthiest guy in the world under 40. Okay. If you will recall, you're probably not old enough. John is old enough to recall this. Uh, <laughs> I probably am. In March of 2000, a bubble burst. It burst primarily in my face, it felt like. And so our stock for nine, eight, nine months went like this. For the next 18 months, it went just like this. So nothing could stop it from going up in the beginning and nothing could stop it from going down in the back half. In the fall of 2001, Goldman and Fleet and CSFB, which were our banks, said to me, hey, listen, we had a banking relationship with them. You have a credit line and it's going to expire and when it expires, we're not renewing it. We were EBITDA deposited We hadn't missed a covenant. They just said, we don't bank Clex anymore. So February 4th, bad luck. February 4th of 2002, we went into bankruptcy. So February 4th of 2002, I hit bottom. Except for your health, as much bad stuff as can happen to somebody, happened to me. That morning when we went bankrupt, that equity, which was again, a billion four officially, finally became zero. Never return. That morning, we had gotten debtor and possession financing, which is financing you take into bankruptcy, but it had a contingency. At Granted, I considered myself the head of the sales force. I considered myself the head of that sales force at Network Plus. The contingency was we had to let go of the whole sales force. So that morning, I had to get on a call with 400 people and say, listen, I know you trusted me. I think most of them joined that company, I hope, because they trusted me. I had to tell them, I have betrayed you. You don't have jobs anymore. That afternoon, my wife was at home with a two-year-old, four-year-old, and a six-year-old. Somebody called her house, she picked up the phone, and uh, the guy on the end of the call said, because of what your husband's done, I'm going to come over and kill you. So February 4th, 2002, I hit pretty close to the bottom. March 15th of 2002, we were sold at auction. June 3rd of 2002, we started granite. And as much bad luck as befell me, first of all, I was a captain of the ship. I'm not passing the buck in any way, shape, or form. I made all the decisions. But there were a whole bunch of bad breaks that happened to us and then a whole bunch of really fortunate things happened to me over the next couple of years probably most of which was my family had to support my father and my mother put in half the money to start granite i put in the other half of the money at the time the telecom landscape had lost by most analysts expectation lost a trillion dollars so there were no assets, there were no venture firms, there were no private equity firms, there were no public fundraising vehicles for Telco. So my family and me having faith in us, probably one of the foremost ingredients in our success. So we started in June 3rd, we got really, really lucky. We were going to do, and I'll be honest about this, we were gonna do what every other CLEC had done, which is build a regional network. To start the business, because we didn't really have any money, that we started this company with seven people, we were going to do wholesale in a region and then deploy switches to increase our margin. We did the wholesale deal with Verizon again, because at the time we didn't have any money. We were lucky enough to get Walgreens and Walmart to beta test us Hmm. as discounting their services in their Boston stores. Shortly thereafter, they said this aggregating and discounting, it works really well for us. Let's do it for New England. Shortly thereafter, they said, this aggregating, discounting, it exists. It's working really well. Let's try it for the entire Northeast. Almost to the same day at the end of '02, they brought us out to Chicago into Bentonville and said, hey, this aggregating of our phone lines works well. We're going to do this for the rest of the country. We may or may not do this with you, but we are going to do this for the rest of the country. So by the time the wheels touch home, I we had to make a decision. Are we going to do what Wall Street and our industry said? which is build a physical phone company, become a regional phone company? Or are we going to do what the first and the fifth largest retailer in the country suggests? And we think that opportunity might be even broader than those firms. But remember, there was no such thing as aggregation, which is what we've become. And so the leap of faith that we took was listening to our customers. And those customers ultimately ended up defining all the successes we've ever had.
1: Wow. Wow. That's an amazing story. And you must have amazing parents, man. That's uh, a whole family. That's incredible. It really is. Thank you.
0: Rob, I'd love to hear you said you were raised in an entrepreneurial environment and the stories you just told about your family's commitment to help you up. Could you describe a little bit of that background and what you mean by that entrepreneurial environment?
2: Sure. As I mentioned, my father ran an import export business, and I grew up in Northampton, right? So Western Mass. I'm from 413, God's country, John. I know you think like Newton is God's country. You got to go a lot further west to get out to God's country. <laughs> so my father ran an import export business and he used to have sales meetings in our living room. So at, you know, once a quarter or twice a year or something like that, he would have sales meetings and there were five or six sales guys that worked there. And I can remember clear as day sitting like at the foot of the couch, listening to him running sales meetings and thinking, this is what I want to do. So I, since the time I was a teenager, I wanted to run a small business.
0: You know, business is all about innovation. How do you find that every day to come up with something new?
2: Well, I actually think it is listening to the customers, that every success that we have had, almost without exception, has been the byproduct of a discussion with customers. So today's Monday. Tonight, I'm actually going to fly out to Cincinnati I'll have six meetings in Cincinnati tomorrow. I'll have four or five meetings in Columbus on Wednesday and I'll come home. And then I'm going to do the same thing in Atlanta and Miami and Chicago and Minneapolis and Houston and Dallas. So uh, I leave almost every Monday night. I have five or six meetings in the city. I go to the next city, I have five or six meetings in the city. First of all, I'm very, 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 very fortunate to do that because I have great operational teammates. To be clear, I'm not a detail guy. If I was in charge of our ops, we would be flailing miserably. My value and the joy I get from the business of being around my teammates and being around the customers. So I'm able to leave and go have meetings with, and I mentioned some of the customers earlier, but they're the biggest companies in the world. Those are the folks that, you know, biggest brand, the most valuable company in the world, which just changed, I think that just changed last week for the first time in years, but both of those two companies, the biggest company in the world, the most disruptive company in the world, you know who they are, those are our customers. And so I have the good fortune of meeting with those kind of folks and asking, of course, is Granite treating them well? And if they're not, then I have to have a different discussion, but if we are, which more often than not is the case, that we could have a strategic discussion. And they tell us what matters to them. They tell us where their pain points are. They tell us how we could improve for them. So being in front of the customers is to me, it's the key ingredient to all innovation because they'll direct you. And so for instance, Walmart again, Walmart called us 10 years ago and they said, hey, listen, we're gonna put a Humana kiosk in every one of our stores. And we want you to cross-connect, bring, meaning bringing the wire, the phone wire, so that when you walk into a Walmart, you pick up the phone and it auto-dials, this is yours, to go back into a Humana and they sell you benefits. And so we want you to get the phone lines, which we said, yes, that's awesome. Thanks a lot. And they said, and we want you to cross-connect it, which is like a technician coming in and screwing the thing in. And we said, we don't do that. And they said, I don't think you heard me. And so we, <laughs> we said, yes, we'd love to do that. And so, essentially, what we did was go to the yellow pages 4100 times because there are 4100 stores, and say, "Hey, Ed's Electric in Bangor, Maine, and you know Pacific Electric in Fresno, California. Can you go cross-connect this thing for us?" And what we realized is, if the biggest company in the world doesn't have a national network of technicians, then probably a lot of other folks don't either. And so that business has grown to be about a $100 million business, It's a strategic asset that we have that other telcos don't have. You know, it's a nice net profit and created a couple hundred jobs. And it's ended up being a significant advantage that, again, Granite uniquely brings to the space. And I'd love to say I thought of it. I didn't. They did.
1: Mm-hmm. We just listened. I think that listening is the big, big key. And it sounds like you do a lot of that, which is... Probably one of the keys to your success. But let's just shift for a minute. You know, Rob, you and your family and Granite have a really rich history of philanthropy and generosity. Granite has consistently been ranked as one of the top companies in Massachusetts by the BBJ for its charitable giving. I think by our last uh, our last list was over seventy two million dollars in uh, charitable giving in the state. And you personally gave uh, a monetary gift to UMass Boston students recently, which was amazing. So talk a little bit about what drives that.
2: We subscribe to Maya Angelou's philosophy, to who much is given, much is expected. I think it probably gets back to being part of, you know, I grew up in Northampton. When I first moved here, I lived in Southie, Alston, Brighton. Then we moved to the Back Bay. Then we moved to Hingham, raised our kids in a community like Hingham. I we lived back in Boston. But every step of the way, we've been part of a community. And if you're lucky, and I work in Quincy. That community and those communities have helped our family. They've helped our company. They've made our lives unique. We have a wonderful life, you know, my wife and I, our family. And we're keenly aware of the fact that that's because the community has taken great care of us. And so we feel that if the community has done so much for us, which it has, then we should do everything we can to help the community. So Mm -hmm. it feels to me like uh, it's the right thing
0: to do.
1: Yeah, that's very inspiring, really. You On the community theme,
0: I know that DI is important to you. Mm-hmm. Could you tell us what you're doing to create a more diverse workforce and foster a culture that is an inclusive and equitable environment?
2: That's bedrock to who granted is, right? Again, back to the community. We work in Quincy, and Quincy is as diverse as any city in the Commonwealth, if not as diverse as any city in the country. And so what we try to do is create a platform where leaders excel By the way, we look at everything long-term. We don't look at anything short-term at Granite. So we have our own culture. and, And to be clear, our culture is about hard work. We don't shy away from that. We expect our teammates to work hard. We expect our teammates to care about our community. So in that environment, leaders from all walks of life are given an even platform to excel. In that platform, diverse, unique individuals do excel. And so to me, it's all about creating opportunity, making sure it's open and fair for everybody. And in that environment, you'd be really surprised. Cream rises to the top and it creates a diverse fabric. We also have, as Caroline mentioned, we were honored to be listed as the, one of the more philanthropic companies in the state. We try to make sure that our teammates drive that. So in addition to $72 million in the state of Massachusetts, last year, I think we put 5,500 hours of blood, sweat, and tears wow. into the community. And so all of those organizations that we support in this community or in any other state that we have teammates in, the places that we spend time and we give our resources, you know both financial resources and talent, they're suggestions of my teammates. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to us that to me, that my teammates own this and my teammates care about this and the teammates know that whatever's important to their community, we are going to help them.
1: I like the way you constantly refer to those teammates, which is really important. So talking kind of on that workforce trend, continuing that, you know, many employers are grappling with the change in workforce, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, What the trend is, generational differences, new and different needs that employees have now since post-COVID. So what do you see as the path forward for employers?
2: I think I'm going to sound like a contrarian when I say this. I think that... Lots of folks today, lots of leaders today suggest that all of the younger teammates want freedom and want flexibility and want to work from home all the time. I don't think that. I think that many of the younger folks want mentors and teachers Mm -hmm. and visible leadership. And so as you could see, we're running a conference call You could see behind me, people are moving around. I sit in a cube in the middle of the floor with 130, 140 people that sit near me. I've been doing that for 21 years. I didn't start during the pandemic, but it's the way that I try to lead, which is to be visible, to be in the middle so that all of our teammates understand, hey, listen, we're all doing the same things together. In this instance, I've been doing it here for 21 years. In aggregate now, I guess I'm getting pretty old, we're approaching 35 years. But I've got lessons that I can share my opinion, General George Custer, who may not be the best guy to listen to in terms of leadership advice, but uh, he said leadership comes from the front. And so to me, it's very important that my teammates see me and other leaders, You know, whether it's the vice president, the directors, the managers, whatever. We expect those leaders to be here or in other facilities across the country so that the 23, 25, 27, or relatively new employees of any age can learn from them. So our expectation is that we're going to, again, back to, I'm not going to shy away from this. We work hard and you should expect me to work hard. I get to work at 5.55 every morning. I feel pretty comfortable. If I get here at 5.55, you should be able to get here by eight. And I'm not trying to sound glowering when I say that, but I think it's fair for me to ask as long as I'm willing to give. If I'm not willing to give, then I don't think I should ask, or at least it's going to be a muted message. And so I sit here so people can see me and our other leaders sit in the middle. Our other leaders, if there's a customer that goes, you know, something goes wrong, I'm happy to get in and try to help fix it. If there's a presentation we're making, I'm trying to help it. I think that this generation doesn't want, this is going to sound contrarian, but I think they want an element of flexibility. But what I really think they want is to learn and improve. And to me, that's best taught close together doing
0: the work together. Rob, turning that dial around for you, who have been your mentors? Who have been the inspirations to you as a leader, both personally and professionally, who have been your role models?
2: My father, first of all, as I mentioned to you, since the time I was a teenager, I expected and hoped to run a small business. When I saw the joy that a small, concentrated and intense team could have and building a small business i always thought that i wanted to do that and so my father is not it was not he's in heaven telecom guy never was but what he was was a leader and so if i had questions about how to deal with the personnel issue or how to deal with a negotiation he was always the first person that i would go to and from my mother i got patience and the ability to so you know you i assume your parents have different ways of looking at the world my father was impulsive and rash and i probably have a little more of that than I should. But my mother taught me to digest and then act, uh, which was a very, very important lesson. I would say in this community, I'm not trying to blow my own heart here. I think people like me are a dying breed. There aren't that many people who want to create a business and do it for the rest of their lives. I think too many of the, and and again, I'm not, this is going to sound contrarian, too many of the business leaders that I know, they talk about angel investors and A round and B round and venture funding. And you could tell it's just a path to an exit. And if that's their choice, more power to them. That's not my choice. My choice is to do this. And so I've been doing it for 21 years. I ran the other company for 12. And honestly, I thought this is going to sound crazy, but I thought I was going to die at my desk. And so when it got taken away from me, what I learned is that I really loved this business, this kind of business. So I have sought out. There are some great leaders in this town. And I'll be honest and say, like the Crafts, you know, that they are a family business with clearly generational vision. They want to create a company that, and I'm not talking about football, or I'm talking about the business, that creates great jobs, creates value, and lasts. And so that's what I want. I don't want to be short-term in my thinking. So I've sought out Robert, Jonathan, and folks like that, and said, hey, and asked questions of them, and they've been very, very, very generous of their time and insight. So folks like that, that seem to me to want to do it for generations are the people that I try to find.
1: Well, I'd love to hear your views about our region, which expands beyond the business. Why, from your perspective, is Massachusetts a great place to work, to live, lead a business? And what do you think needs work and attention here?
2: I don't expect to ever leave Massachusetts. I like, you know, as I mentioned, I grew up in Northampton. I went to school in Connecticut for four years, and then I came back here to Boston. I don't expect to leave i think some of the foremost strengths of massachusetts are part of what makes it so appealing to that next generation which continues to either school here and stay here or come here after their schooling you know it's an eclectic cultural mix it's got a, a variety of really interesting communities both intellectual and logistically Needless to say, our academics are foremost in the world. Our medicine and research is foremost in the world. The financial community here is very, very strong. So there are some really powerful, compelling strengths. And the snowball turns powerfully downhill for us, where it's almost like a magnet that so many of the young kids here, other people are going to Boston. So they want to go to Boston.
1: Great insights.
0: Rob, we'd like to close with some rapid fire questions. So off the top of your head, are you ready? Okay. Tell me. What are you currently reading or watching?
2: I read every day the journal, the globe, every week, business week, fortune, and forbes and sports illustrated. Knock on wood, it survives. <clears throat> of course, I read the Boston Business Journal every week. Of <laughs> course. <laughs> and so I'm more nonfiction. Then I am fiction, and I've just concluded a nonfiction called Blind Man's Bluff," which is a series of chapter short stories about Cold War, Russian, and American submarine espionage, which is spellbinding.
0: What is something on your bucket list? Boston Marathon. That's right. Mm. What would you do if you had no fear? I don't have a lot of fear. I do what I do. What's your favorite spot in our state?
2: I got engaged on the Mass Ave Bridge, so it's the most sentimental to me.
0: What do you do for fun?
2: We bought a farm in Norwell. It was a horse farm. We've turned it into a non-for-profit. We've planted an, apple, an expansive apple orchard. We've put in honeybees. This past year, we created they created 900 pounds of honey. This year, I think we'll get it up to 7,000. Looking forward to creating... It's called Fox Rock Farms, an expansive, non-for-profit, honeybee restoration project.
0: Critically
1: important. What's the name of it again?
0: Fox Rock Farms. Fox
1: Rock Farms.
0: And finally, what's a wish you have for the future of our Commonwealth?
2: We have so many great things. If we can fix these two or three primary shortcomings, I honestly believe we're the best state in the country. Because tried and true, I'm a Massachusetts citizen and fan. I do think we have a couple of those significant issues that we need to tackle. And if we can improve on them, we become the most compelling state in the country.
0: And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Rob, and for sharing your insights.
2: John, Carolyn, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I'm John Bernstein.
1: And I'm Carolyn Jones and this is PNC Speak, the language of executives. Our guest today was Rob Hale, president and CEO of Granite Telecommunications.
0: You can find PNC Speak at bizjournals.com backslash Boston or on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next time.